So uh, what we are doing in two weeks is we're starting a brand new series called The Reason for God. And as part of this, what we're doing is we're giving all of you guys, each family, a book. Not every person, but each family. And uh, we've handed a lot of books, so we're probably going to run out. But if uh, raise your hand if you guys need a book, a Reason for God book. Okay, we're, Again, we're going to probably run out. If we don't get to you, we will have one for you next week. Don't worry, it's what we started handing them out this week. So it's going to be back to you. Uh, now here's, here's the thing. All that I need you to do out of this book for like two weeks until we start that first week, is all you got to do is read the introduction. I know hard, right? You just get through the introduction. Now, I know some people, you don't like to read, you hate reading, so there is this thing called Audible. Okay? Now, on Audible, you can, if you're like, I don't want to spend, oh, oh, we'll have more next week, sorry. Anyway, so on Audible, what you can do is you get a, oh, we got one more, one more. There you go. Arm wrestle for it. I'm going to Rochambeau. Uh, anyway, I don't, where was I? Oh, so Audible. Uh, what you can also do on Audible is you can get a free 30-day trial, and you can get this book. And if you're like, I'm only going to listen to one book and nothing else, you can cancel and keep the book. I'm not telling you how to work the system, but I'm just saying they let you do it. So there you go. And all you got to do is listen to or read the introduction over the next two weeks before we start the series. And again, the reason for God, the book, it's, it's not about uh, 10 steps to a better you. What the reason for God, the book is about is how to speak about our faith in a world that is very skeptical in a way that begins to make sense. And so that's kind of why we're going to cover that series. It comes really good right out of the book of Proverbs. So there you go. Hey, and if and, and just think about this. We're, we say we're giving you books, but, I mean, you guys really donated and we bought them with your money, so. <laughs> so you're really just giving yourself a book. There you go. You're welcome. Uh, hey, welcome to Element, if you're new. Uh, there are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. On the inside, you'll get some notes to go deeper into what we're talking about, some questions to ask one another to go a little bit deeper into what we're talking about. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. You click on More and then Events, and Uversion will come up by GPS in your smartphone, and you will get uh, sermon notes, questions, all the announcements that Sarah talked about, uh, all those things that go with today's message. Uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Uh, this is Proverbs 14.23, and if you're observant, we started with this last week as well. It says, In all toil there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us as a people what it means to have you come in and re-narrate our lives and our work and everything that we do. That we would live out things upon your narrative that has been spoken over us. And that we would trust you for what you say and what you continue to do and that we would live out lives that bring you great glory as we continue to live in the joy that you provide. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are doing the series of Element, going through the book of Proverbs. Uh, we only have this week and next week, and then we're done. You can listen to all the previous ones online. Again, as I always say, they're free. You get what you pay for. Uh, but this is called counterculture. Not that we're against our culture, but we want to be counter to many of the ways our culture wants to destroy things in our lives and around us by making us focus on ourselves. Because we want to be a people who are for hope and grace and mercy and beauty all these things that God calls us to in our lives. And today what we're going to talk about is one of the last weeks I put together because I thought we could always use another week on work, laziness, and sluggards. 
Right. Yeah, okay. So uh, the one I talked about last week, I put that together at the very beginning of the entire series. And then when we were getting ready for the reason for God, I was reading a bunch of Keller stuff, and he kind of talks about this as well. So I'm like, I'm going to steal that, and I'm going to use it, and I'm going to talk to Element about it, because I thought it was, it was really good. So last week is practical. This week is as well, but kind of at, with a different bent towards it. You'll see what I mean. Uh, the teaching of the book of Proverbs, more specifically the entire Bible, is that work is a very good thing, and that laziness is a bad thing. Uh, if you have this dream in your life, life to sit around like a Greek god and, and have people put grapes in your mouth so you can eat them as they fan you and stuff like that. That is never the goal of what the scriptures speak about because that's not who God is. Now, when people say the Bible is just like every other religious text in the world, they have either never read the Bible or never read any other religious text because the Bible is completely different. The teaching of the entire scriptures is it looks very positively on the idea of work because our God works hard and well. It's one of the reasons we're going to do the Reason for God series so we understand this a little bit better. And sometimes you only get this of how different the scripture speaks about it if you contrast it with other things. Like anyone ever hear the story, the the Greek legend of Pandora's box? Okay, so in the story of Pandora's box, there's creation. And the first human beings are living in bliss. It's like this huge paradise. It's perfect. And Pandora gets a box. And the gods say, don't open the box. So what does Pandora do? (laughs) Opens the box. Like, what would you do? Like, Christmas present. I'd open the box. Like, Right, so, you, so she opens the box. Then out of the box comes all the human miseries and ills that afflict us today. What comes out is decay and death, disease and aging, sickness and work. Work comes out of the box because, according to this view, work was evil. Uh, the Mesopotamian account of creation is called the Enuma Elise. And in it you have these gods, and they make the world. And after they make the world, they realize there's upkeep in the world, and they don't like that. Like, if you're going to buy your first home, you're like, I'm going to have kids and a dog in the backyard and the grass. It's going to be amazing. Then you realize, what do you got to do? You got to mow the grass and pick up the dog poo, and it's not really the funnest thing in the world. So these gods are like, oh my goodness, we made this thing. What are we going to do with this? And so they go to the God, Marduk, and they say to Marduk, they say, hey, this is not fun. We need something so we don't have to work so hard. And so Marduk says, I will bring into being a lowly primitive creature we'll call man. To him shall be charged all the labor so that the gods may have rest. Now, if you look at the book of Genesis, in total contrast to every other religion and religious text in the ancient times, the first thing that you see God doing is literally working with his hands in the dirt, making us. Adam's name comes from the name for dirt or clay or mud. It is not beneath God to work. The Greeks didn't know what to do with this because for them, the material world, it, it is corrupt and work is just a necessarily, necessary evil and manual labor is all degrading. And, but here in the Bible, God has his hands in the dirt, very blue collar. Open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 104, Psalm 104. God creates the garden. This is a paradise for humanity. This is the best place for human flourishing. And in the midst of that place, God puts work. He makes them gardeners. Before sin, before brokenness, before the fall, man gets to work. And what does that mean? Well, it means on one side, there is no text like the Bible that associates all work, even manual and menial labor, with great dignity and honor. The Bible has zero snobbery. It has zero class consciousness because the biblical God does manual labor when he makes the first human beings and he makes them again gardeners. When Jesus shows up, God in the flesh, he doesn't come the way Greek gods would like a philosopher. He doesn't come like Roman gods would have come like a general. What he does, he comes and he is born to peasant parents who have no place to stay and he is placed in a feeding trough for animals. That's who our God is. 
And the first 30 years of his life, he apprentices and then becomes a carpenter. He works a manual labor job. That's who God is. The Spirit of God in the book of Genesis hovers over the surface of the waters, and that means he is involved in his creation. Psalm 104, verses 30 to 32 says, When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. When you look on the earth and it trembles, who touches the foundations and they smoke. This is the idea that God saves our souls, but he also takes enormous delight in growing and cultivating and enriching and caring for this creation. Again, by making us gardeners, he gives us great dignity that we get to work the way he does. Everything we do in work is meant to be a spiritual work. To dig a ditch, to compose a piece of music, to preach a sermon, to get an investment, to get a product that actually goes to market, it's all spiritual work according to the Bible. Because God is a gardener, and God is an artist, and God is an investor in creation, and God is a preacher. There is no text anywhere that looks at work like the Bible does. Work was in paradise, it's part of the environment, so we need that for the human heart to begin to flourish. The Bible says it's not a necessary evil, work is good. Do you see how counterculture that is? A couple or last week, my wife and I were driving back from Los Angeles, and we stopped in Camarillo to get some food because you're hungry, and that's why you stop. It's at that. I've been there. It's like that little outlet mall place, and they got all those restaurants there. So we pull in into that shopping center, and there's this girl in this blazer, and she's got her car parked across like all the lanes of traffic, and everybody's just kind of leaving her there and doing. And I'm like. So I pull over, I get out of the car, and I, and I walk up, and I go, I'm going to push you out of the way. And so I need you to turn the steering wheel. And she says, I can't, it's broken. And I said, no, that's called power steering. When your car is off, you can still turn it. It's just a lot harder, right? So I'm ready to push, and I look up, and I see this guy. It's like a 20-year-old dude playing on his phone in the passenger seat. And I'm like, hey, help me. He's like, oh. So he gets out, and I'm like, we're going to push this. And so I go, like this. And he goes, and I go, like this right? Give me some effort, right? So we, we start to push this thing, like, crank the wheel. She cranks the wheel. We get it this way. I'm like, come around to the back of the car with me. So I go to the back of the car, and I get down to push like this, and he goes, and I go, like this. I'm going to push. I'm going to push the car. And he's like, oh, okay, You're right? And so he pushed it. And this whole transformation took place in this dude from getting it there all the way into this parking spot. By the time I got in this parking spot, he was like, I just did something. This is amazing. I'm like, yeah, you just did something. This is amazing. And all of a sudden, his whole demeanor changed. Why? Because he worked. And we, were, and we are made for work. It's an amazing, it's so counterculture. Proverb talks so much about the subject of work that we saw last week. And it talks about it positively. And when it does that, it's called diligence. And when it talks about it negatively, it's sluggard or sluggardliness. It's slugs. They don't move too fast, and they're really nasty, and all that. So Proverbs tells us if we want to live a counterculture life in regard to work, we've got to do our work, and love our work, and redeem our work. And I stole those from Keller, so I'm going to uh, talk about those. Uh, open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 10. Proverbs 10. So first off, doing your work. Uh, this is uh, out of the NIV, Proverbs 10, verse 4 says this. Lazy hands make a man poor, but diligent hands bring wealth. Now, that's a principle, not a promise. The word lazy here, it literally means slack. Slack, like if you're trying to have a bow and arrow, you need a tight string to shoot things. If you want to be Katniss Everdeen or the Green Arrow or something like that, you need a tight bow to shoot things. If you have a slack bow, it's not that the arrows won't actually go anywhere. They just won't go very far, and they won't go to what you're aiming at. You need a strong, tight bow. So a lot of commentators, when they see this word diligent, they think it doesn't mean so much hard work, but smart work and targeted work and strategic work, like knowing when it's actually time to harvest. Like you can't harvest in the middle of winter unless you have winter berries. 
cherries. We have plum trees in our backyard. You don't want to harvest the fruit on that in the middle of March because they're hard and they're, my dog eats them and she poops a lot when she eats them. But that's, that's what happens. You don't harvest in March because you're not dumb like a dog. You work diligent like God calls us to. See, it's talking about the importance of diligent work. Proverbs 27, verse 18. Whoever tends a fig tree will eat its fruit, and he who guards his master will be honored. The NIV says it like this. He who looks after his master will be honored. Now, it, this is this is like a paradox because in the text, if you are a servant or a slave, you know, you're looking after your master. That's a very low status. But it uses this word also honored. Honored is only used for people of very high status. And so what it's telling you in this paradox, that in the eyes of God, even the most menial tasks, even the most menial work has dignity and honor to it because our God works hard and well. That's kind of what we talked about last week. So secondly, we're going to go to this, loving your work. Now, in our context, this probably means something a little bit different than it meant for the Hebrews at the time when Proverbs was written. Because today, people, when they love their work, we love our work too much. We love our comfort and what comes from our work. The Hebrews, on the other hand, loving their work was totally opposite of the entire society who saw work as a necessary evil. And so we are to love our work, but it's kind of different in our context. So the Bible in Proverbs talks a lot about our motives for what we do. That's why it talks about the heart a lot. So Keller says there's actually two motives that are mentioned if your work is going to be noble and fulfilling. The first one he says is you have to work in response to the human community. Now, what does that mean? Let me explain. Uh, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 5, you're still in Proverbs 10. He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. Now, it doesn't say man here. It says son. Son is related to a family. A man is on his own. A son is connected to a community. It means you're working not just for yourself. You're looking for things that are around you. And when it uses the word shame, that that word is like disgrace. Disgrace is shame. And when we talk about disgrace, in, in our minds, we don't really understand fully what it means because we live in a right and wrong culture. This was an honor and shame culture. And so we take these words guilt and disgrace and shame. We mix them all together. Guilt is basically a failure to perform up to some type of standard. Here are the rules. Here's the law. You failed. You're guilty. But shame goes even deeper than that because shame becomes a failure to the community around you, a failure to do for the community what we ought to be doing. One of the purposes for how work is supposed to help others in the community around us is how we work out and see the needs of others that are around us. The Bible says we should choose our work and begin to do our work in a way that we see the needs of others around us in what we do, that it's not just for us. Dorothy Sayers writes just after World War II, and this is what she says. The habit of thinking about work as something one does to make money is so ingrained in us that we can scarcely imagine what a revolutionary change it would be psychologically and socially to think otherwise. In the modern view, people become doctors not primarily to relieve suffering, but to bring themselves and their family up in the world. After World War II, one of the greatest surprises for many Englishmen who had to serve in the army was that they found themselves for the very first time in their entire lives happy and satisfied. Why? For the first time in their lives, they found themselves doing something not for the pay, because the pay was just atrocious, and not for the status, but for the sake of getting something done for us all. It's kind of like the kid pushing the car. Like, as soon as he actually did something, he's like, wow, I did something. I'm like, yeah, you did something. That, that's pretty cool. I mean, you want to talk about societal change and being counterculture. What if we chose and conducted our work not just for ourselves, but also looking for the benefit of those around us? I mean, more than for profit, more than personal advancement. Not that you're not supposed to work and make a wage and get paid and, and stuff like that. 
But Proverbs comes in and it says, just work well and think about those around you. It doesn't even tell you what jobs you should have and what jobs you can't. I mean, any job can be a Christian job. I mean, I guess you know, there always are jobs that aren't Christian jobs, right? You know, don't be a drug dealer or a crack There you go. Don't be a crack There's a crack dealer, right? But, but most jobs are allowable, right? Proverbs asks us to be wise. And many jobs, depending on some of our situations, just may not be wise for those situations. God says, if you want to be a counter-cultural revolutionary, do and conduct work and choose work in response to some of the needs that you see around you. Be useful to others. Uh, motive two, he says, we're supposed to choose and do our work in response to God's calling. I'll explain what that means. Proverbs 22, verse 29 says, Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. Now, in English, there's a couple ways we could translate the word skilled. But in Hebrew, it essentially means gifted. It means that a man or a woman has an ability or a talent, and that talent is a gift from God. And so the scriptures teach us to look at the things we're good at doing, those things that we love to do, that they are an accident. We are made by our creator, and there's certain things that he placed in us that fit our capacities. And we can do so much cool stuff when we do the things that we're actually good at. And I'm not saying that your gifts should be so narrowly focused you can only do one thing. But maybe you're in a job and you're not using your gifts, but you can always find a place then to volunteer to use those gifts that you're actually good at. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This means that we are put together by God in a certain way. And there's certain things that we are good at. And when we stop working for ourselves and our own personal advancement and start to see the community around us in how we work, we will start to find that we have more joy and more peace, and more satisfaction in our work. We work for the community, more response to God's calling. And again, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying you shouldn't work to make money or charge a fair price for a product, you should. But what happens in many cases is money and comfort become our goal when it begins to overshadow everything else. And that's bad. And, and don't take this as tuning my own horn, so to speak, but when my wife and I uh, bought the house that we're in now, if you've been to baptisms, you've been to our house. Uh, when we bought this house, it was foreclosed, bottom of the market, completely trashed, and we actually went in the middle of the night because we didn't want our realtor to know we were looking at it because it was so far out of our budget. And so we go in the, we had to, uh, in the backyard because the gate was busted, and it's just, just, just overgrown jungle, and it was terrible, but it was big. And, and my wife and I looked at each other, and we said, think of all the ministry we could do here. Think of the connections that people can make and what we could do. So in a sense, we actually bought our house for you guys. Uh, not that you can show up at my house and be like, let me sleep in your spare room. You can't do that. But I'm just saying, that's, that's how we kind of re-narrate and look, look at these things. See, uh, be careful that the gifts that God gives us don't pull us away from the kind of jobs and things that could benefit those around us. This is why Keller calls this re-narrating your work. Re-narrating your work. In Proverbs 8, you see God's wisdom going to three places. The city, the community, and the heights. It refuses to stay just in the home. It refuses to stay personal. It must go out. So it goes to public spaces and it calls aloud. In Proverbs uh, chapter 8, verse 3, it calls out beside the gates. The gates are the places where the elders of the city would make decisions. So it goes into the justice system of a city. In Proverbs 8, verse 2, it sits at the crossroads. That's like Main and Broadway or Bradley and Clark or the Crossroads Center over there. It's like all where all the businesses and the marketplaces come together, which means it's supposed to be spoken about into the commercial realm. The heights are these places where you would put the temples where people worship. It's in the highest place of a city. And so at this time, there'd be temples to like, you know, the goddess of fertility or the god of war. And what do we have today? If you go to, down to big cities, what are the tallest buildings? Businesses. Office buildings. Why? Because what do we worship? 
We worship ourselves and our comfort and our money. We worship profits. Our master narrative as a society is individual fulfillment and freedom, and that trumps everything. No pun intended, by the way. Uh, It trumps commitments and family tradition and divine authority. It trumps everything. The master narrative that's worked itself out in our society is financial profit and my comfort and what I want is the bottom line. Some companies will do community service, but sometimes it's only so people will see them as being nice so they make more money. But God's master narrative isn't that one. That's not what life or work or history is meant to be about. I mean, Jesus says what's wrong with history is everybody's self-centered. They keep looking for themselves and their own glory and their own comfort. But this is where the beauty of the gospel, the good news, comes in. Because Jesus comes to reweave and renew and re-narrate and recreate ourselves back to what we were meant to be in Genesis. This idea of peace with God. Shalom. Peace in the world around us by how we live and how we work. And this is what we're talking about in Proverbs and counterculture. Living the idea of what God calls us to out in the culture around us. We speak it into business by how we do business. We speak it into friendships by how we do friendships. We speak it in how we relate to justice and all of our work spaces. Our culture today wants to co-opt and put us into its narrative. And God says, don't do that. Be in my master narrative. I am the one who will write your story. Trust me. Your story is found within me. Guys, I'll tell you, in the end, it's not enough to be people come to church on a Sunday and get inspiration for your private life. We need to say, how does this work out everywhere in every part of my life? Which means, thirdly, we need to redeem our work. Or, I would say, do work in a redeemed way by how we re-narrate our economic mindset. Now, for some people, this sounds a little threatening when you, when you say it like that. Like, do I got to give stuff away? Well, I don't know. Maybe. It's whatever God tells you to do. Can I not make a profit? Of course you can make a profit. Do I have to preach to everyone who comes to my workplace? Well, I would say yes and no. I mean, if you're like making Sundays at Doc Bernstein's, don't be like, here's your Sunday, and let me tell you the four spiritual laws. You know, you don't want to do that, right? But you want to do it by how you work and live and honor them by how they come in. You want to preach the gospel in, in that way. We want to be a people who come into contact with customers and employees or colleagues or community, we want them to flourish. And sometimes that could mean we do take a hit for certain things. Let me give you a famous example. Um, this is extreme, but I think it's a really good example. Uh, in England in the 1700s, there was this thing called the Great Awakening. The Great Awakening, hundreds of thousands of people come to follow Jesus. And they look around their society and they say, how do we now take this gospel of grace that we understand and work it out in our public life? And so they look around at public life and the biggest thing they see is the African slave trade. So for 30 years, Christians in Britain did everything they possibly could to work towards the abolition of slavery and the slave trade everywhere they found it. At one point, Christians in England did a petition drive, and they got one half of the voting population. One half. Slaves couldn't vote, okay? So one half of the voting population in England signed a petition to bring about the abolition of slavery. Some people in the upper classes were against it because slaves were cheap labor. And so you had all these scare tactics in politics. Imagine, scare tactics in politics. That never happens, right? So, And it was like, you're going to pay so much money for your goods. You shouldn't do this. This is dumb. This, this is terrible. Historian Howard Temperley says the abolitionists in the House of Commons actually accepted provisions in the Emancipation Act to compensate planters for their losses by an enormous sum to come out of the British Treasury that was equal to one half of the British annual budget. One half. To do what? to either pay them not to use slave labor or to free them and then pay them a living wage so they can actually live. Now, the Abolition Act passes in 1833, and then on August 1st, 1834, slavery ceases in all British colonies. 
the direct cost of this to individual British citizens is substantial. Uh, you, had, you had taxes that would pay off these people who are no longer using slaves or having to pay their slaves, but also the paying for the naval operations to stop slave ships wherever they found them. They paid a huge cost. And in the end, as predicted, all the scare tactics were actually true. The costs of emancipation were so high that historian Seymour Drescher called the British abolition of slavery voluntary econocide. This is what he says. They were willing to trash their economy for almost a generation in order to rid themselves of the slave trade. Howard Templey writes this. He says, The British anti-slavery movement has continued to intrigue historians, not the least because of the apparent lack of self-interest on the part of its principal supporters. This is totally contrary to conventional views of political behavior, and it has given rise to much scholarly controversy. Yet in spite of the exercise of much ingenuity over the last 30 years, no one has succeeded in showing that those who campaigned for the end of the slave trade and then for the freeing of slaves to personally gain in any way from it, but rather only to lose. Why did they do it? The fact is that those who brought about the abolition of slavery in Britain quoted the scriptures. They wanted to follow Jesus, and they put their work and their money where their mouth and their faith was. And they talked about sin and God's saving grace. And this is what it means to begin to re-narrate our work, to understand how we have our income and redeem these things, and what it means to not take the sluggard's way, and how God re-narrate our entire economy. And I know what you're probably thinking, that's a great story, that, that, that's so wonderful and idealistic. But I think if we look around today, we could even find some things that we could begin to be involved in. But you have to understand, we don't find our worth or our value in that cause or thing we're doing. We find it in Jesus, and then that re-narrates what we do, and that's what brings change. We have to understand that what we do is all grounded in the idea that God has placed us in this world now as his ambassadors to be his image bearers. Today in our society, we work so hard, and we overwork, and we burn out, and then when we burn out, we underwork, and we don't work that well at all. Proverbs fifteen nineteen out of the NIV says, The way of the sluggard is blocked with thorns, but the path of the upright is a highway. Seems kind of upright, or uh, straightforward, right? If I'm lazy, things go badly. If I'm diligent, things go good. But that's not what it's saying, because it doesn't use the word diligent there. It uses the words upright, meaning someone who follows God. But if you read all the scriptures, you realize that no one is actually upright. Nobody is. Uh, in Psalm 130, verse 3, it says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The NIV says it like this. If you kept a record of sins, who could stand? There's nobody upright. Now, I want you to follow me in this because I'm going to go somewhere with this. The word thorns is significant. When you read it in the scriptures, thorns would always for a Hebrew reckon back to the idea of Genesis. You know, you, God creates mankind. What does mankind do? They don't trust God. They want to narrate their own life. They want to have their own story. And everything goes wonky and sideways. And creation is underneath man, so it falls and you get thorns and thistles. And as soon as this happens in Genesis 3, God comes. And he promises that he himself will come and rescue and redeem that Jesus, as the upright one, will come and rescue and he will save us. And I think the Proverbs kind of points to the problem today in our work. We are all sluggards. And you might think, I'm not a sluggard. I work a lot. I work really hard. I work really well. But a sluggard wasn't just lazy. Okay, A sluggard may work really hard, but they did what they did for their own comfort, their own betterment, and not for others. That was also a sluggard. Our way is marked by a curse, and Jesus is the upright one who enfolds us into his righteousness. He is the one who re-narrates our lives and opens the way up for us to actually live in a redeemed, re-narrated work. Now, I'm going to tell you about my guilty pleasure. I make fun of country music a lot, so I will tell you mine and you can make fun of me, okay? Uh, I watch this show called Project Runway. 
All right. I don't. I don't watch all the all the squabbling in the middle. If you've never seen Project Runway, what it is is uh, you have on one side they they give them a challenge, like in these like sixteen sixteen seamstresses, and they got to start out making these these garments like in a day. And then at the end, they walk down the runway in these garments. It's really fascinating what they get, and then what they do at the end. All the stuff in the middle, whatever. Okay. Uh, so I let us now. What Project Runway culminates in is this thing called New York Fashion Week. Uh, actually, in New York Fashion Week isn't just for Project Runway. It's it's for all fashion. It's like the place where people want to go and, and show off their stuff. Now, um, uh, Michael Musto, he writes for this thing called The Village Voice. And he is not a Christian by any stretch of the imagination at all. But this is what he writes about uh, New York Fashion Week. He says, Fashion Week is that period of ritualized yearning in which people jockey for visibility while hoping that nearness to a runway will purge them of that nagging feeling of soullessness. He says it's not about the clothes. It's not about the money. It's, it's about us that everyone desperately wants to believe that they count in some way. And we have this feeling inside that we're nobody, and so we're working like crazy to prove ourselves. And, and the truth is that people are not doing really anything for others in their work or the love of the job. We do it because in the end we're trying to find salvation by what we do. So that people would look at us and they'd say nice things and be like, oh yes, now I feel good about myself, because we find salvation in that. But guys, salvation isn't by our work. It is by the work that Jesus did for us. Because Jesus died, because he took those thorns, we get that metaphorical highway. And someday all the thorns will be gone. And it's not just that we get hope in Jesus, we actually get rest. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Sounds like he's offering a vacation, but he doesn't stop there. He then says, And take my yoke upon you, and learn from me. See, Jesus doesn't say, Don't work. What he says is, Work with me. And when you work with me, you will live in true and real freedom when I re-narrate everything for you. This is why the New Testament says all that we do, we do for the glory of God. We don't make, make a cause our worth because our worth doesn't come from a cause. Our worth comes from our God. We don't make work our worth or value. Our worth and value comes from what our God has spoken over us. It's not all these things. We love our work because we love Jesus. And we do our work then in a redeemed way so it first honors him and others because he did the ultimate work for us on the cross. What we have to understand is the gospel re-narrates everything. Everything in our lives becomes re-narrated through the lens of the gospel of what Jesus did. And this is why you can have a group of people get together and say, you know, we're going to ruin our economy for a whole generation because that is a horrible evil and it needs to stop. Now, you may not see something like that around you today, but maybe you're at work, and maybe you need to start opening your eyes, and maybe there's, there's a single mom or a single dad, and they're struggling making ends meet, and so maybe you go buy them some groceries. Maybe just something as simple as that. Or maybe you do see a huge need with, like, you know, the refugee crisis or something like that, and getting involved in something there. I mean, there, there is a lot of ways to be, allow God to begin to re-narrate the things that we see in our world and what we do. But it must not start with the cause. It must start first with Jesus and his re-narration of who we are and why we work and why we do what we do. Because we don't do what we do to make him love us or like us. We do what we do because he has first loved us and he has first blessed us. And then he has called us as his children now, as redeemed people, to live out in the world in a way that they would understand who he is by how his people lives. It's a completely different way to re-narrate our lives. By trusting in Jesus first. This is one of the reasons we go to communion every single week. Communion is a really great place for us to actually take all the narration of who we are in our lives, of what we have said about ourselves, and lay it down. And understand the re-narrated work that Jesus speaks over us. 
that his body was broken for us and our sin and what separated us from God. His blood was shed. So you take that cracker that you break and you dip it in the wine or the grape juice because it reminds us of those things, that he is the one who speaks what is true and what is right and he calls us in and forgives our sin and brings us back into relationship with God and calls us his children and takes away our sin and our shame and our disgrace and gives us new life because he's good. He's good. The band's going to come up, as they do. I'm going to invite you to take communion, and there'll be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you need prayer, if, if you're trying to find your value out of your work, and it is overtaking your life, and you want somebody to pray with you, they would love to pray with you about that. Because so often we don't even realize it, and yet we're still trying to find our value in something that is not who God has said we are. We try and find in things that, that are not Jesus. And every time we do that, we will always end up coming short. Because it is not our work, it is not a cause, it is not all these things around us that we do that give us worth and value. It is what our God speaks over us that is true. And so we trust what our God has said. You are my child. You you have run from me. You have rebelled. You've narrated your life in a way that makes it all about you. But trust me. Because I don't want you to live in the shame of that. I want you to live in the hope of the grace that I provide for you. So trust me. And then we are people who do trust him in all that we do. And everything in our lives becomes re-narrated through the lens of the good news of what Jesus did to rescue us. This is how we live a countercultural life. Um, there's offering boxes next to every single door. And we give because God gave so much to us, giving us part of our worship. We do not pass a plate. It's always a response to what God has done. There's food outside. Uh, grab something to eat. Meet some other people. Take some sermon notes. Maybe if you, if you meet somebody, you can be honest enough. Ask a question like, uh, how have you been narrating your life in a way that doesn't reflect what Jesus said over you? And then maybe you can pray with somebody else and talk to somebody else, and they can help you begin to see what Jesus has actually spoken over us to call us into the grace and the hope and the truth of his gospel. Because i got to tell you, what Jesus speaks over us is immensely positive. It is so great and good. You know, we, we, we own up to who we are and who we've been. But yet he comes and he says, you know, that's who you were. This is now who you are in me. And we trust him for what the gospel speaks over us so we can then have everything in our lives re-narrated by the gospel. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would remind us of your narration of our life. That we would see the places that we keep telling ourselves a certain narrative that is simply untrue. It could be in a relationship where we feel like we keep failing. It could be at our workplace where we feel like we keep doing the wrong thing. It could be in a myriad of places And we keep telling ourselves what things are. When you want to come and re-narrate that in our hearts and our lives to say what is actually true. Father, I ask that you would teach us to be a people who not just do our work and learn how to love our work in the right way, but do work in a completely redeemed way. That we would look outside of ourselves to what you call us into. That we would give because you have first given to us that we would see all the blessings that, we, that have come into our lives and we would see those not just for ourselves, but we would see those as ways to bless other people around us. That you would teach us not to look at just our salvation as being a personal thing, though it is very personal, but we would see it as your rescue of us and calling us then out to make a difference in this world by connecting with other people who believe in you 
and living in a way that shares your good news with those who don't. That we would reflect the goodness of what you have done and all that we do because you are gracious and good and holy and right and full of justice and truth and full of mercy and grace. So teach us to have our lives narrated by you, living out in the world so people would know the great God that has first loved us and that we love back. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.